Our lives are ruled by chance, and that can work in our favour when it comes to a chance meeting with a romantic partner or a spontaneous decision to buy a lotto ticket that wins you some money. But no one likes to leave our health to chance. Yet chance can affect our medical care, says Dr. Bapu Jenna, a Harvard professor, economist, and host of the Freakonomics MD podcast. With observational studies and data analysis, he and his co-author discover the hidden but predictable ways in which chance affects our health, answering questions like, is there ever a good time to have a heart attack? Do you want an older doctor or a younger one? Can marathons affect the health of people who don't even run in the race? His new book is called Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients and Shape Our Health. And Dr. Bapu Jenna joins us now. Hello. How's it going? Thank you for having me. Nice to talk to you. I'm great. What got you thinking about the role that random acts of medicine have on patients as well as health professionals? You know, it, it's interesting because we, we live our lives in, um, in a way that we feel like it's kind of predictable. Like if we, if we diet properly, if we exercise properly, we can control everything about our health. And that's true to some extent, but there's a lot of things that are outside of our control, some of which are totally random. Like if you're walking across the street and you're unlucky enough to be hit by a car or a bike, that's random and it's not predictable. Mm. But there are other things that affect our life, true chance occurrences that we can predict to some extent and that we can learn from. And, and that's sort of what this book is about. Is the role of chance a hard pill for doctors to swallow? Uh, I think it can because doctors generally, I think, feel like they, they are in control of what's happening. I mean, they realize that it's a doctor and a patient versus a disease, and that's nature. It's very difficult to fight nature, but nonetheless, they try. But I don't think that most doctors would think that uh, the day of the week that they happen to be seeing a patient or whether they see a patient in the morning or the afternoon uh, or on their birthday, for example, might affect the type of care that they provide. But it turns out that that sort of thing does happen. Is what if a useful question when it comes to this area? And given that we second guess a lot of our choices anyway, can it be a harmful question? I, I think it can be harmful if we if we find ourselves in a situation where we're always second guessing uh, ourselves. That that's certainly true. And uh, but I think it, it can also be helpful, especially if you if you don't take an individualistic approach and say, all right, well, what happens? What would have happened to me if I had seen a different doctor or if I had not gotten that surgery, which led to a complication? That That is a question that's fraught with anxiety at the individual level. But if we step back as a society, as a profession and say, all right, well, what can we learn from situations where people are taken down different paths by chance in a way to uncover which of those paths is actually better for people on average? I think there we can actually learn something and it can it can do good for all of us. Many of your studies aren't the classic double-blind, controlled, randomized studies. They're more like natural experiments. Um, you talk about an economist who wanted to know if Olympic gold medalists live longer than those who win silver or bronze, and what did he find? So there they actually found that the the gold medalists live a lot longer than the silver medalists. And <laughs> this is true chance. You could have two people running a race who are separated by being a gold versus a silver medalist by a fraction of a second. And yet the paths that these two people's lives take are very different. The gold medalists have longer lives than the, than the silver medalists. Actually, best to be bronze, though. Best to be bronze, exactly. You never really had a, uh, a shot, I guess. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
Oh, there's all sorts of fascinating um, uh, findings. Like your son was born in August. That's your summer. I guess for us that would be like having a baby in February. And how did that prompt you to ask if kids with summer birthdays are more likely to get the flu? That was a really interesting experience. So our son is uh, born in August. And in our country, whenever uh, a child turns, let's say, three or four, they go to the doctor, the pediatrician, for an annual checkup. Mm. And that happens around their birthday. So I took them to the doctor in August. And the flu vaccine is not available here until late August and early September, because that's when our flu season starts. Right. And so as I'm walking out of the office, the pediatrician's nurse says, come back in a few weeks, we'll have the vaccine ready for your son then. And I thought, wow, had my son just been born three weeks later, <laughs> his annual checkup would have been three weeks later, and he would have gotten the flu shot in the office. And so we look at the data. And if you look at, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids who have August birthdays versus, let's say, October birthdays, the October kids, October born kids, they're much more likely to get the flu shot in a given flu season because when they're there for their annual checkup at the doctor's office, that vaccine is ready for them to get and they get it. And that's that's why they're also less likely to get the flu than those summer born kids. Yeah, 13 point difference. 53% of kids with fall and winter birthdays got their flu shots and just 40% of kids with summer birthdays. And the ripple effects of that lack of vaccination must be huge. Yeah, and I'll tell you another story. Where we live, we, we just moved to a town outside of Boston a few years ago, and I was going to the bank to set up a new bank account, a local one. And the bank teller told me that uh, when he found out that I was a doctor, he said, you know, my dad was just in the hospital in the intensive care unit. And the reason why is because the bank teller's son, so the grandson, had a play date with a little kid who had a fever, and that child's parent brought them to the play date anyway. So the little kid had a fever. Uh, uh, infected the friend with the flu. The little kid's, the friend is the grandson of uh, the bank teller's dad. And the dad got the flu, ended up in the ICU, nearly died actually, Mm. but made it away okay. And so that's the sort of ripple effect that you see and that we saw in our own data. And so does that suggest we need specific policies to help out summer babies? Yeah, I, th- I think it suggests two things. One is it suggests that we, we need to put a spotlight on what are the barriers that people face when they when they need care. So in our country, probably less so in, in, in Australia, New Zealand, but in our country, uh, costs of care are a big issue. But we focus on those, I think, appropriately so, but we, we forget that there's other barriers that are really important. So, for example, at my hospital, it costs 11 to $15 to park. Wouldn't it be surprising then to see patients? It wouldn't be surprising to see people don't go to their primary doctor yeah. because of the cost of parking. And in, in my son's case, it was something as simple as when he was born that makes it extraordinarily more difficult for him to get the flu shot just by virtue of his birth date. Uh, and so it speaks to figuring out policies to not only make care more affordable all over the place, but also more accessible. So so that people will get that, right? You get the flu shot on your birthday. You're more likely to get it if it's available on your birthday. What about this other finding, though, that um, kids born just before the start of the school year are diagnosed with ADHD more than kids who are older when they start school? What, what's going on there? Yeah, that's also interesting. And I, I should say that's, a, that's actually not just a United States finding. That's mm. a universal finding. We see that across countries. And in, in every country, in, in, in our country, for example, in, in the state that I live in, if you are five years old, 
before September 1, you can enter kindergarten. Uh, if you are five years old, let's say on September 4th, uh, then you have to wait a year to enter kindergarten. Right. And what that means is that in our state, kids who are born in August are the youngest kids in their class. And kids who are born in September are the oldest kids in their class. Right, yeah. And what happens is that those August-born kids are 30% more likely to be diagnosed and treated for ADHD compared to those September-born kids. And the reason why is because they're just young and immature relative to their peers who have you know, spent 20% more time on planet Earth. And the same phenomenon happens across the world depending on when the cutoff is. Not that they may be more necessary. Not that they necessarily are more likely to have that disorder, but they're more likely to be diagnosed. That their behaviour is more likely to be interpreted as ADHD. That's one hundred percent correct. Exactly. Like you see a child who's not as attentive as his or her peers, and you think to them, think to yourself, okay, might this child have ADHD? They might. You don't know. But it's also possible that if you just waited a few months, maybe six months, that they would develop outside of that phase. And they would start to look more and more like their peers. You just have to give them a little bit more time. And that, that's going to be true for some kids. I'm talking to Dr. Bapu Jenna, a Harvard professor, economist, and host of the Freakonomics MD podcast. His book is called Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. While we're on birthdays, is it better or worse to have surgery done on your surgeon's birthday? It, it, it turns out it's worse. I mentioned this in passing earlier. We we did some work with uh, a colleague at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, Yusuke Sugawa. And what we showed was that when people have a surgery on their surgeon's birthday, they have a higher mortality rate than if they have a surgery by that same surgeon on any other day in the surrounding <laughs> several weeks. And we think what's going on is that there's some distraction, right? Like, it's your birthday. You're excited about what's happening that you think, or maybe you're actually not happy because it's your birthday and you're, you're getting older. Who knows? But it's something different that you're experiencing compared to any other day in the surrounding weeks. And we see that that has an impact on the mortality of the people that a surgeon operates on. A statistically significant impact. Correct. Yeah. And also a, a kind of a meaningful, meaningful increase. It's not a very small one. It's a, it's a measurable one. And it, you know, it's something I'd be thinking about. Do I want a doctor who's seen more birthdays or fewer birthdays, an older doctor or a younger doctor? Uh, it, well, it depends. Short answer is it depends. Uh, if you are uh, undergoing surgery, you want a doctor who is older. And the reason why is because in surgery, uh, this is an art of repetition. You have to see this complex anatomy in these very tight, confined geographic spaces within the body where the surgeon's operating. So seeing more and more of those things will make you better. And we see that that is the case, that older doctors have better outcomes. You know, when we're talking about in their 40s, all the way up to the 60s, if you're 90, mm -hmm. it's a different story. It might be worse. But for non-surgeons, let's say you, if you go to the hospital or a loved one goes to the hospital for pneumonia or a heart problem, those types of doctors, they actually have better outcomes the younger they are. And the reason why is because in non-surgical fields, like general medicine or general practice care in the hospital, a lot of what a doctor does is just knowledge-based, based on what is the most current medical diagnosis and treatment information. And the closer they are to their training, the more they know about what that current medical knowledge looks like. The further you get away, you do develop more experience seeing patients, seeing conditions, 
but you also get further away from what's the latest, greatest medical information. And so there's a trade-off. And what we see is that that trade-off favors the younger doctor versus the older doctor. Why am I less likely to die when my cardiologist is on holiday? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, so let me tell you the finding and I'll tell you what I think is going on. Yeah. So we look at what happens to people with cardiac conditions during the dates of, of major cardiology conferences. In our country, we have the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology meetings. There are national meetings. Lots of cardiologists go there. And what we see is that patients who have cardiac conditions, acute cardiac conditions, during the exact dates of these meetings, they have lower mortality. They are less likely to die. And we also see that they are less likely to receive certain procedures, uh, surgical procedures, that entail some risk. And so what we think is going on is that during the dates of these meetings, doctors have to prioritize who really needs to be intervened upon Mm. and who can we just kind of watch and manage more conservatively. And in doing so, they actually generate more benefit uh, because there are people in other periods of the year who we might be doing too much to. Mm. Marathons. Interesting enough to look at the health of people who run marathons, but you decided to look at the health impacts of people who aren't running in the race. What's going on there? Yeah, exactly. So if I were to ask you, like, do you think that marathons are good or bad for your health? You'd probably think, oh, I wonder if people who are running marathons. But no, there's another group of people who are affected. <laughs> if you think about what a marathon entails, it's a you know a huge disruption to roads in a city. More than 26 miles are involved. Right. Think about an older person, someone in their 70s or 80s, who lives on the route of that marathon, who might have a cardiac emergency. What happens to the to that person? The, the ambulance is going to have a harder time getting to them, and it's going to take longer for them to get that person to the hospital. And we show that that happens, and we show that that means that there's an increase in mortality for those people because the care that they receive is delayed. And we show that quite a few people die from these events every year because marathons are ubiquitous. They're very disruptive. But we think about the health of the marathon runners or maybe the spectators because it's a hot day outside. But we don't really think about the health of people who are older, who might need acute medical care, who happen to live near the route but can't get to the hospital in time because the roads are closed. People have started picketing horse races. I wonder if one day we'll see people picketing marathons, calling them killers, (laughs) (laughs) deciding to to close all those streets off. But just to be clear, the picketing might cause some problems, too, if it leads to the roads being closed. So So many of the bad outcomes that we see and some of the ones we've discussed come down to human bias or maybe human distraction. Does that mean AI might one day reduce the part that chance plays in our medical care? I I think it could. Um, It could to the extent that it provides uh, clinicians, decision makers, a more unbiased representation of the information that they need to make a medical decision. But there is a problem if AI simply replicates the same sorts of biases that human beings have when they make medical decisions. Mm. So it's really important for any sort of artificial intelligence framework to, to, to be derived, to draw on what I would call a, a true north, a true description of what matters for someone's health, and what matters for whether they will benefit from one treatment versus another, as opposed to what a, a, a doctor or a nurse might think would be the right answer. Because once you enter that space, then you're already 
starting to uh, package in all the biases that they may have. So I, I think that without a doubt, there's a, there's a lot of benefit to be had. And, and certainly one role that I think AI could place play is to help just give doctors a, a broader sense of what they should be considering, right? The, the computer does not have to replace the decision-making of the doctor, but there's no reason why it can't say, oh, have you considered this diagnosis given these symptoms, given these laboratory values, given these imaging findings, I see that you've considered this possibility. But there's three other possibilities that you should be thinking about. The doctor can then look at that information and say, oh, yeah, you know what? That's right. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe my initial instinct was wrong. So I would think of these two groups, AI and humans, working together in tandem, not one replacing the other. I think one of the big takeouts of the book is that medical decision-making isn't black and white. Um, in fact, that you've summed that up in a quote here. You say... The same sorts of ways we think about decisions to buy Doritos versus a different brand of potato chips could affect something as monumental as whether or not I'm offered cardiac bypass surgery. You know, we think of those two decisions as being completely different. But in fact, That's there, are, right. there are ways in which those two thought processes are similar, yes? That's right, yeah. I mean, so we, we talk about this, we talk about a lot of different biases and um, cognitive errors that that people make. And one interesting one that we talk about in the book is something called left-digit bias. When you go to the store and something costs $1.99 versus $2, the reason it costs $1.99 is because you are more likely to buy that item, not because it's a penny cheaper, but because it seems much cheaper. And it's because it has a one in front of it as opposed to two. And that is this bias that human beings have, which leads them to focus on the leftmost digit mm. in a string of numbers. It, now, that same sort of thing, which might affect the purchasing of Doritos or a soda or something else in the store, one would not think would be as relevant to something that's as major a decision as a cardiac bypass surgery. But that's a really well thought out decision. You're not running into the store and making an impulse decision to purchase something. And yet we still see that this leftage of bias happens in cardiac surgery. If you look at people who are 79 years old and 51 weeks, just about to turn 80, they are more likely to be offered cardiac bypass surgery if they have a heart attack than someone who is 80 years old and one week. And the reason why is that the older patients are, the less likely doctors want to do aggressive medical interventions. And so they see a person who just turned 80 and the, the heuristic in the back of the doctor's mind says, this person is in their quote-unquote 80s versus someone who's 79 and 51 weeks. This person is in their 70s. And clearly, they don't differ in age by half a decade or a decade. They only differ in age by a couple of weeks. But the mind is tricked. And it, it is surprising to me that the mind can be tricked in something as serious as cardiac bypass surgery. Final question, how do we get better at asking the right sorts of questions of our doctors, the questions that will actually make a difference to our care? I think it starts with figuring out what matters to you as a person uh, about your care. Um, you know, in our country, um, we, we think very much about, it, about what we call patient-centered care. And yet, if you look at the care that people receive, I don't think most people would say that it's patient-centered. And, and the reason why is because if you're in the doctor's office for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, how patient-centered can it be? There's not much time to unpack the various concerns that someone might have about their care, mm. about the recommendations being made. 
it's not much time for a doctor to explain how they came to the treatment decision, decision they came to. They just make a recommendation and you as a patient sort of have to take it. And there are some of us who are lucky to be able to have longer, more meaningful discussions with our doctors, but many times we don't. And so of all the things that we focus on in medicine, there's lots of issues of quality and access and cost. But one thing that I think that we think too little about is time. And, and time is required to solve almost every problem. You can't solve most problems without time. And yet that's one of the scariest things that we have to work with here. Fantastic. The book is called Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients and Shape Our Health. And I've been speaking with Dr. Bapu. Jenna, great work on this book. Uh, good luck with it and thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it.